Would you open your Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Ecclesiastes chapter 5. In 1973, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I was watching a Billy Graham crusade. So it was especially wonderful to have Franklin here last week. And I remember as Billy turned toward the camera, I think I may have told you this before, that he said, if you're watching by television, you can know Christ. And uh, I prayed to receive Christ. And at the end of his broadcasts, at the end of his crusades, for those who come forward or those who are watching, he will typically then say, and make sure that you go to church next Sunday. That's part of his commitment in the message that Christians ought to congregate together frequently. Make sure you go to church next Sunday. However, as it would happen, Christians have all sorts of creative reasons. Uh, We know them as excuses why they can't be at church. They're not feeling well. It's too cold. It's too hot. It's too loud at church. It's too whatever. Anticipating this, one church was creative and wrote an announcement in the Sunday Bulletin. Here's the announcement. To make it possible for everyone to attend church next Sunday, we're going to have a special no-excuse Sunday. Cots will be placed in the foyer for those who say, Sunday is my only day to sleep in. (laughs) Murine will be available for those with tired eyes from watching TV too late Saturday night. We will have steel helmets for those who say, The roof would cave in if I ever came to church. (laughs) Blankets will be provided for those who think the church is too cold. Fans for those who think the church is too hot. We will have hearing aids for those who say the pastor speaks too softly. And cotton for those who say he preaches too loudly. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the hypocrites present. Some relatives will be in attendance for those who like to go visiting on Sunday. There will be 100 TV dinners for those who can't go to church and cook dinner also. One section will be developed or be devoted to trees and grass for those who like to seek God in nature. (laughs) And finally, the sanctuary will be decorated with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who have never seen church without them. (laughs) I heard about a guy who was playing golf on Sunday morning um, and he was uh, late for his foursome's tea time. They waited 20 minutes before he arrived. And he finally, they were about to go out without him. Finally he said, sorry guys, sorry I'm late. What happened is this morning I tossed a coin It was an agreement I made with my wife to see if I should play golf or go to church. It was heads, uh, I play golf, tails, I go to church. He said, guys, it probably took me 40, 45 times before it finally got heads. (laughs) So he was thinking of any way possible that he could escape the commitment of church. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The title of this message is, You've Come to Church... Now what? You've come to church, now what? You might say, Skip, it's pretty strange that you would choose an Old Testament passage to speak about a New Testament topic like the church. Well, isn't it interesting that the book of Ecclesiastes opens up with these words, 
the words of the preacher, the son of Solomon, king in Jerusalem. The word, by the way, preacher in Hebrew, kohelet, means one who assembles or a caller, a, a congregator, one who assembles. And the Greek term for that is ecclesiastes. Now, we think of somebody who is preaching a message. However, Solomon's title of being this congregator, this caller, this assembler, is that Solomon was assembling, convening different philosophies of life together. This is what he was doing. He was making observations about the way people live their lives. He was getting all sorts of ideas and ideologies and philosophies together to examine what is the best, most fulfilling way to live my life. He is observing, and here's a common phrase in the book, life under the sun. And his conclusion in every observation is this, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. No matter what experience, pleasure, wealth, friendships, it's all emptiness in the end. Now, in chapter 5, Solomon turns to the temple that he built. And he is watching people's religious practices. I sort of picture Solomon as standing outside of the gate, maybe incognito, robe around him. And he's watching people come to the temple, bringing their sacrifices, singing their songs, doing their liturgy, and he's watching as they do it. You've come to church. Now what? We're going to look at the first seven verses this morning, and in doing so, we are faced with three questions. You've come to church, now what? Number one, what is your approach to God? Number two, what is your commitment toward God? And number three, what is your attitude toward God? Look with me at the first seven verses together, then we'll go back. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God, that would be the assembler, the preacher, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. What is your approach to God? Now Solomon, it would seem, considers three different ways people can approach God. Number one, a ceremonial approach. A ceremonial approach. If you know anything about the temple in the Old Testament, um, the, the centerpiece of Jewish life in the temple was the regalia of the ceremony, the ritual. It was all about bringing the sacrifices and having priests officiating in a certain way, in a certain manner, at a certain time. It was all about the ceremony and the ritual. 
However, in verse 1, God refers to, through Solomon, the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools. Now, wait a minute. I thought all of the sacrifices were prescribed by God. They were his idea. Then why would Solomon refer to them as the sacrifice of fools? Here's why. He observed as people were coming to the temple, their approach to God was purely ceremonial. That is, they were keeping meticulously the ceremonial law while they were breaking the moral law. They were worshiping idols. They were slandering each other. They were bitter. They were unforgiving. They were stealing from each other. All the while saying, but we're coming to the temple. We're offering the sacrifices and patting each other on the back. By the way, this is not isolated. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, God indicts his people for this very reason. Listen to the opening chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Not the whole chapter. Here's a few words. God said, I am sick of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Do not bring me any more burnt offerings. I don't want the fat from your rams or other animals. I don't want to see the blood from your offerings of bulls and rams and goats. The incense you bring me is a stench in my nostrils. Your celebration of the new moon and the Sabbath day, your special days for fasting, even your most pious meetings are all sinful and false. I want nothing more to do with them. A lot of times people approach God thinking their ceremony can substitute for their obedience. As long as I go to church, let's see, I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, I've gone through this ritual and that ritual. I even take communion. It's all about the ceremony. However, I think you'd agree that ceremonies can cover up a lot at the same time. If we're looking to a ceremonial approach, they could cover up how we really live our lives. Ceremonies, rituals can cover up a lot of wickedness. You remember Cain and Abel. One was a farmer and a One was not. One brought a sacrifice to God of the fruit of the ground. Uh, That was Cain. He was sort of the uh, gardener. And then the other guy, his brother, the farmer, brought the firstlings of his flock. The Bible said that God respected the offering of Abel, but he didn't respect the offering of Cain. And the Bible says that Cain was bummed out. It didn't actually say bummed out. That's the NSV, the New Skip Version. It actually said his countenance had fallen. Loose translation, he was bummed out. And God came to him and said, Cain, why art thou bummed out? And then the Lord said, if you did right, would you not be accepted? Did you get that? If you did right, you'd be accepted, wouldn't you? See, he was bringing the sacrifice, but his life wasn't right, and God is saying, Cain, I'm looking beyond the ceremony into the heart of the person doing the ceremony. And what I see isn't right. And if you were right, you'd be accepted, but you're not right. So that was the approach, a ceremonial approach. Well, it was not only Cain, but it was Saul, the first king of Israel, that had that same mentality. You know the story. He went out to fight the Amalekites. He disobeyed God. He brought sacrifices back. And when Samuel the prophet heard and saw that Saul was returning from the battle of the Amalekites, he said, why didn't you do what God told you to do? 
Why didn't you destroy everything like God told you to do it? And the king said, Oh, I brought the best of these animals to sacrifice to the Lord. Remember what Samuel said? He said, Has God as great a delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than what? Sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. So here's the king himself thinking his ceremony can substitute for obedience. And it wasn't acceptable. Well, if you come to church and you think, i got to tell you, I'm making God really happy because I showed up. And as long as I show up and go through the ceremony, I'm going to be right with God. That's ceremonial approach. Quick story. We were once needing a building back in Albuquerque years ago. Couldn't afford one. An owner of a building found out our need and decided he would rent us this building for what we could afford. And I saw this directly as a gift from God. As I was about to sign the document, this guy leaned over his desk and he said, you know, the way I figure it, Skip, is this is going to be enough to push me over into heaven on Judgment Day. And I dropped the pen. And if there, if there was ever a time I didn't want to preach the gospel, that was it, because I thought I could lose the deal. But I put the pen down and I, I told Rick, there's heaven and there's hell, and Rick, you're not on your way to heaven, and you can't get there by thinking you can do something to earn God's favor. God loves you, God will receive you, but you can't do this thinking God will say, okay, you've done the ceremony, you made him a good deal, come on in. And I was able to share with him, and praise God, we still got the deal, so I was happy for that. <laughs> Look at verse 2 of our text. This is the second approach. If the first approach is a ceremonial approach, the second approach is a superficial approach. Superficial approach, verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth or hasty. Don't let your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven. You're on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Verse 2 highlights rash speech. You know, you rumble quickly through the prayer list. Verse 3 highlights much speech. I'm going to fill in lots of words and have eloquent, flowery prayers thinking that's all that I need in my approach to God. Make it sound really, really good. It is possible to utter words before God. And though God hears all of our words, it's possible to pray and not even be praying to God. Jesus told a story about two people, Luke 18. He said two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. Jesus said, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, saying, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. In other words, he wasn't praying to God. He was praying for his own benefit, and he heard his own prayer, and he probably stood in the temple and raised his head, and he said this prayer out loud, and then he thought to himself, Man, I'm really good. I know, I, I can pray. I'm eloquent. It was all superficial. It was just flowery. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, 
Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. You know, one of the marks of pagan worship thousands of years ago is that they took phrases and repeated them over and over and over and over again, thinking the longer you do it, the more the gods will hear. Remember the story of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel? He had that contest with the prophets of Baal. I think uh, Elijah probably uttered 20 words, but it says they prayed, that is the false prophets prayed, from morning until midday, morning till noon, praying, repeating themselves, mantra, shouting. But they weren't praying to any, there's only one God, so they were praying to something that wasn't a God, nothing happened. But they thought that they would be heard by their much praying. Reminds me of a story I heard about a little boy in church. He was praying very fervently, but he was praying uh, every so often in his um, words. He'd say, Tokyo, 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 Lord, hallelujah. Tokyo, 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 Tokyo. And this uh, caused the pastor some concern. So afterwards, he went to the boy and he said, you know, I was very encouraged that you were praying so fervently, but... Why were you saying Tokyo, 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 Tokyo over and over again? He said, well, pastor, I just finished my geography test in school and I was asking God to make Tokyo the capital of France. (laughs) See, he knew he got that answer wrong. So he thought if I just say it over and over and over again, it's going to happen. Well, Solomon discovered that people can come to the temple superficially ceremonially. Solomon discovered what one group of researchers recently discovered when they took a look at church-going America. We've all heard the statistics that most Americans claim to be Christians, born-again Christians. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. And so this group decided, let's examine these people who call themselves Christians and not only observe their church attendance, but let's look at four areas of their personal life and dig a little bit deeper. And that research yielded these results. They revealed, in their opinion, after the research, that 19% of Americans are really committed. That is, they practice what they say they believe regularly. Only 19%. 22% are what the study called modestly religious, while 29% are barely or minimally religious. Solomon discovered that as he watched people in the temple that day. What is your approach to God? Is it ceremonial? Is it superficial? There's a third approach. Thoughtful. Careful. Look at verse 1 again. Walk, what's the second word? Prudently. Walk prudently or thoughtfully, carefully. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. If you have a King James Version, instead of walk prudently, it says, keep thy foot. Keep thy foot. In other words, watch thy step. Be very thoughtful and careful when you come to church. Here's the idea. Be prepared. That's a good question. That's a good thought. Don't raise your hands. But how many of you come to church prepared? What do you mean prepared? Don't you just throw a coat on, put your hair back, put pants and shoes on, you're out the door? A little makeup, you're set. That's being prepared. Yes, that's preparation outwardly, but do you ever prepare inwardly? You go, well, what do you, why should I? Well, how about this? 
Lord, I'm about to go to church. I'm going to meet with people that I know. I'm going to meet some people I've never met. But first and foremost, I am going to meet with you because it's your house. It's about you. And so I want to walk very carefully and have my heart prepared before I make this journey. And so it says, walk prudently when you come into the house of the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. It says, draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. Now, this is why we come prepared. This is the reason that the approach to God, the, the approach to the Lord's house ought to be prudent and thoughtful and careful because God is going to speak to us. It's like Samuel said, speak now, Lord, your servant hears. So God is going to speak to my heart. Uh, if you have a New Living Translation, uh, you'll notice that it says, as you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Very plain, isn't it? Keep your ears open and your mouth shut. As one reminded us years ago, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should listen twice as much as we talk. And when we come into the house of God, if God is going to speak to us, then our ears need to be wide open. By the way, I believe you can worship with your ears. I don't mean that you get them pointing up to heaven. The idea is that we worship by listening. Anointed speakers need anointed listeners. Anointed speakers need anointed listeners. Walt Whitman, one of America's great poets, once said, to have great poets, there must be great audiences. Now, I want you to turn to a portion of Scripture with me on that note. Keep a marker here and go back to um, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 is a preacher's dream. It's a preacher's dream. I'll show you why. As you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, they're back in Jerusalem. Ezra is there. They get their Bibles out, or they would say they take their Torah scrolls out. Verse 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. That's a long church service. That's probably a four-hour Bible reading. How many of us could take that? And by the way, they didn't sit. They stood during that time, as you'll see. I remember when I first went to India, I was so impressed with the fact that these people walk for hours, and then once they come to church, they want about a four-hour service. I thought I could get by giving a one-hour message. And when I was done, I went, you know, I'm done. They go, oh, no, not so fast. We're just starting. (laughs) They wanted me to keep going and going. And here's the effect here. From morning till midday, the law is read. Verse 3, he read from it in the open square. We already saw that. Um, before the men and the women and all who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they made for the purpose. Beside him, all these people with funny names that I'm not going to read. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen! Amen! It was an interactive Bible study. They participated. While lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That was anointed listening. They were worshiping God as He was speaking to them from His Word. Now somebody might say, yeah, but God didn't speak like He used to speak. I think people don't listen like they used to listen. I think God is speaking all the time. He's competing for all of the other voices that are crowding. Well, let's look at the next verse, verse 4 through 6. If the first question is, what is your approach to God? The second one is, what is your commitment? Or we might say, your affirmation to God. So back in Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. In other words, you don't make a commitment to God and say, Ah, I was just joking. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. Okay, here's the general context of the entire paragraph. The setting is the temple. They're bringing their sacrifices for worship. And while they come, the people are making some kind of promise, commitment, vow to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, in two places... It's Deuteronomy 23 and Numbers 30. There is the provision in the law for the people to come and make a vow, a public affirmation of what they are going to do before the Lord. They don't have to do it. God never made it compulsory. It was always voluntary. But God said, but once you make the vow, do it. Obey it. Keep it. So often, we uh, make our vows or oaths to God, our commitments in the storms of life. And then we break them in the calms of life. Lord, if you get me through this, I promise I'll do whatever. So God said, if you vow it, make sure that you keep it. This is what I want to get to. When we come to the place of worship, it ought to be a time of making commitments. I think every single time we gather and the Bible is open, it shouldn't be about information, but transformation. We've heard something, we've come, we've gathered, we're singing songs, we're reading the Word. So what? Now what? What's next? I'll tell you what's next. It should be a time of making a commitment based upon what we hear. That's scriptural, by the way. Joshua gave his final speech to the people of Israel gathered together after years of fighting battles after entering the land. And after his message, he said, Now choose this day whom you will serve. Elijah did the same thing. There was a contest on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and God. We made reference to it a few moments ago. And he gave a little message, and then he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, worship God. If Baal is God, worship Baal. But make a decision. Make a commitment. Make a choice. Jesus did that. John chapter 6, he preached a hard message, and while he was preaching it, people got up and walked out. 
He turned to his disciples and he made them make a commitment. Will you also leave? And they said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He did it again at Caesarea Philippi. He said, I got a question for you guys. Who do people say that I am? Oh, there's all sorts of opinions. You know, they think you're John the Baptist. They think you're uh, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Who do you? Who do you say that I am? He brought them to that point of making a choice. All right. Consider some of the choices you may have already made before thinking about making any rededication. What what about vows you have already made? Like, I accept you, Lord, into my heart as my Savior and my Master. How are you doing with that one? Is he still Master? Is he still someone you pursue and seek and love and follow and obey? I can think of another vow. Some of us stood... Uh, on a platform like this in some church and looked to a spouse and said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Not till debt do us part. Until death do us part. How are you doing with that commitment? Some of you have made commitments to a church. I'm here. You can count on me. I'm going to serve. I love this body. Those are all important and great commitments. How are you doing with them? I heard about a young college guy who went into a photo studio with a picture, a framed picture of his girlfriend. He wanted a copy of it, a duplicate. He took it into the owner of the photo studio, and the guy said, well, I'm going to have to dismantle the frame and the glass and get to the photograph, and that's how I make my copies. Fair enough. As he was taking it apart, he noticed on the back of the photograph a beautiful love note written from this girl, Diane, to her boyfriend, Tom, on the back of her photograph. It said, Dearest Tom, I love you. I love you with all my heart. My love for you grows each day. I will love you forever and ever and ever. My heart is yours for all of eternity. Signed, Diane. But he noticed below that was P.S. P.S. If we ever break up, I want this picture back. Wait, wait a minute, what happened to forever and ever and my heart is yours for all of eternity? P.S. Whoever break up, I want this thing back. Here's my question. Is there a P.S. in your relationship with God? Oh yes, you're my Lord and Savior. But, here's a contingency clause. Are there any P.S.'s in the vows and the commitments that you have made? Is the question. What is your approach? What is your affirmation or your commitment to God? Now, in hearing all that, you might say, well, fine then. It, you know, it says in the Bible that uh, you don't have to say the vow, but if you say the vow, you've got to do it. So I'm just going to sit here week after week and not say any vows. Then you have reduced yourself to one of those first two approaches, either a ceremonial approach or a superficial approach. But it's not a careful, thoughtful, authentic one. So we gather, we approach God, and we come making that commitment by His grace. Some of you this morning need to make a commitment to Christ. Some of you have been religious for way too long. Way too long. In fact, you pride yourself in being religious. Some people ask me, Oh, I see you have a Bible. Are you religious? And I go, No. I love to say it that way too because they look at me like, I should be. And then I explain to them, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you? What do you do for a living? I tell people how to go to heaven and how to have freedom from sin. You interested? 
well, I'm religious. You're very, I'm not religious at all. Religion can cover a multitude of realities. Let's consider the third question. What is your attitude toward God? And we'll end where our paragraph ends in verse 7. Verse 7. We almost finished it, but we didn't read the last sentence. It says, In the multitude of dreams and many words there is vanity. Here's the conclusion of it. But fear God. But fear God. Now, don't get the idea of the Wizard of Oz and those three cowering before the mighty wizard. You have to be afraid of God and shake in your boots. The idea, probably most of you already know, it's a phrase found 50 times in the Old Testament, fear God, so it must be important, means to have a reverential awe based on loving submission and humble submission to a loving God. I I reverence you. I love you. I respect you. Bottom line, but fear God. Okay. Have you noticed in our paragraph that we have read this morning the wording? For instance, in verse 1, the house of God. Verse 4, your vows to God. And now here, fear God. So what do you think is the key component in coming to church? God. Good answer. It's God. It's all about God. That is my motive. That is my attitude. Why do I come? Because God. One of my favorite songs is a song that we sing from time to time. I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Don't you love that? It's so rich. It's so powerful. Truth be told, some can't sing that honestly. If, If some were to sing that honestly, it would come out, I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about me. It's all about me, Jesus. We'd never sing that, but the way we live and grade and judge and move, we've made it all about us. You see, we live in a world that tells you to live for yourself, but we serve a God that says, make me, number one, fear me, love me, respect me above everything else. Hey, I found an ad an advertisement in psychology today. Let me read it to you. I love me. I am not conceited. I'm just a good friend to myself, and I do whatever makes me feel good. That's why when we gather together as the church, we're making a statement that we are contra mundum. We're against the world. We don't adopt that value system. It's not about us. It's not about what we like. It's not about what makes me feel good. It's about fearing and glorifying and honoring God. It's His church. I will build my church. So, this morning, examine your approach. What is your approach to God? And let's encourage each other to start coming Prudently, carefully, thoughtfully. And how about this? Punctually. See, that just generated a little bit of laughter. Punctually. It starts at 9 and 11, not 11.30 or 9.30. Our attitude ought to be, I want to get there so that the first breath of worship, mine is included in that. Second, our attitude or our affirmation, our commitment should be like, Like Samuel, Lord, I'm coming to listen. I'm a hear. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. What do you want me to do? And then our attitude. 
our vow to God, the house of God, fear God. What is the one truth you hear and I hear more than any other truth in the Christian experience? I'll tell you what it is. That Jesus died for your sins. We hear that every time we go to church. If you go to any church, Jesus died for you on the cross. We can hear that so often it goes over our heads. It's meaningless. Familiarity can breed contempt. But let me ask you another question. How many here, and I like a show of hands, have had somebody close in your immediate family, son, daughter, husband, wife, father, mother, die? Raise your hand up. So I'm talking to people who've experienced deep pain. Their death causes your reaction to be very deep. Now, having said that, and I want to tie it all together, I'm going to read you something. This is a words of a, a boy who lost his brother. His brother died. He was the youngest son in a family. They lived way out in the country. There was only one little country road. Cars barely even traveled on this road. But as it happened... The youngest boy was struck dead by a car while he was riding his bicycle. And the older brother writes, Later, when my father picked up the mangled, twisted bike, I heard him sob out loud for the first time in my life. He carried it to the barn and placed it in a spot that we seldom used. My father's terrible sorrow has eased with the passing of time. But for many years, whenever he saw that bike... Tears began streaming down his face. Since then, I have often prayed, Lord, keep the memory of your death as fresh as that to me. Every time I partake of your memorial supper, let my heart be stirred as though you died only yesterday. Never let the communion service become a mere formality for me, but always a tender and touching experience. Now, before we pray, I'm going to give you three bullet points that I want you to either memorize or write down. Memorize them or write them down. Number one, guard yourself against formality. It's the easiest thing to do coming to church. It's just something we always do. It's formalism. Guard yourself against formality. Number two, devote yourself to consistency. Consistency. See, I'm consistent. Every Christmas and Easter, I'm there. Now, consistent fellowship, reading the Word, loving God. And number three, let your relationship with God be your priority. Let the relationship of love and intimacy be the priority.